Ladies and gentlemen, to this guided tour of your New York Stock Exchange. The shares we trade here are owned by millions and millions of ordinary Americans, just like you and Howard Hughes and J. Paul Getty. The market is a ticker, a slender piece of tape, which notifies the public of its economic shape, which, if it weren't legal, would be statutory rape that's perpetrated daily from ten to half past three. A simple little business, it's A, B, C. A is for analyst. These are highly skilled professionals who spend their entire lives studying the market. Sir, do you think the market is going up or down? We have every confidence that if there is no decline, the market will go higher. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 24th, 2022. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, will be released in September of 2022 and can now be pre-ordered on Amazon. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Welcome back. Aren't you nice? Well, last week you were at the Future Fest 2022 at the Dayton Playhouse in Ohio, where you judged a new play contest. So tell us, uh, are we looking forward to new plays? Oh, yeah. This was a particularly strong uh, roster of six plays. Um, the uh, one that uh, the five judges, um, um, one of them, uh, chose was a play called Every Living Soul, which um, was set in the Depression and dealt with Pretty Boy Floyd, Public Enemy Number One, and his uh, last days. Um, it was it was so interesting to find so many people had read articles in a newspaper or run into a little thing here or there and said, wow, this would make a great play. And that's what happened here with um, William Cameron. Similarly speaking, um, you may have heard of Lakshmi Tata, uh, Tatma, um, a kid in India who was born with four arms and four legs. So uh, Holly Help Galvin, uh, who lives in Astoria, wrote a play about that called Lakshmi Counts Her Arms and Legs, about the difficulties um, with uh, that and people who were surrounding her, including her parents, and how they felt, because a lot of people in India felt that this was a goddess. So do you amputate? legs and arms from a goddess hmm. you know so um hmm. griswold was about um uh, a woman who we don't know much about but again a newspaper article um inspired angela j davis not the notorious angela davis to write about um <laughs> reproductive rights and um <laughs> so uh this was a very timely play um i very much <clears throat> enjoyed um a play called little sisters of littleton uh, by Kate Kachner, who lives um, in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. And um, this is about um, a woman who is sneaking a guy out of her house um, because she doesn't want her sister to know that she's sleeping with the guy because that guy was the sister's former husband. So uh, that's uh, a lot of comic possibilities here. Very, very funny um, play. And um, and The Docent um, was a, a very fine play, too, uh, by Donna Kaz, who lives in Blue Point, um, dealing with um, the AIDS crisis back in the 80s and what that was like and, um, and how difficult it was for so many of us who lost so many friends. And uh, so 
really, these were um, terrific plays. Uh, the Wild Boar, Daniel Damiano, who lives in Brooklyn, um, dealing with a woman who's, um, who lives on an island and becomes friends with a wild boar. And, of course, um, the boars are terrorizing the, um, the island, and they, the, the authorities want to kill all the boars, and she's really bonded with this boar. So, um, so all, really, uh, I've been going to this uh, since the 90s, and this was the strongest year ever for plays, so um, it really was something to see. And the Dayton Playhouse, oh, my God, they, they put so much into this for one performance, Three of the productions, three are literally productions. People memorize, people block. Three are readings. And you might say, wait a minute, doesn't that give the advantage to the productions? People see productions, and I mean, instead of readings. Uh, the majority of the winners have been readings, including this year. So, um, but uh, really quite an experience. And I love going there, and the people are so wonderful, and there are so many wonderful actors there. So, uh, so I'm really thrilled to uh, go every year. But I did miss seeing you guys last week, so <laughs> you can't have everything. <laughs> so we missed you too, Peter. Uh, so that sounds like a, a really wonderful thing. So we have uh, uh, six wonderful plays to look forward to, hopefully making their ways uh, around the world following their uh, mm -hmm. the Future Fest 22. All right. So also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. So, Peter, you got over to the Hayes Theater to see The Kite Runner, uh, which is playing through October of 2022. So tell us, what do you think of this? Well, I had an experience I've never had before with this. Um, usually when, when a, a, a play has been adapted from a previous uh, property, I, I like to do homework and um, read the original property if it's a novel or see the movie or what have you. This time I only read the novel of The Kite Runner. Uh, that was the extent of it. I frankly didn't have time to do uh, the movie. and uh, But I figured, all right, the book. And uh, you don't need me to tell you that this book is very good. I mean, after all, it was a tremendous success um, and a, a wonderful bestseller. And uh, and everybody loved Khalid Hosseini's uh, book. Um, but what I realized is what a profound difference there is between a book and a play. Now, a lot of people might say, well, you, it took you all these years to know that. Here's what I mean. <laughs> Here's what I mean. The book is told in the first person, and it's about a guy who makes a lot of mistakes in his life, <clears throat> mostly out of cowardice. And it reads, not that it's structured this way, but it reads like a diary. And you really get the, you're really getting into his private thoughts, and you're really reading about this. And that's fine. You accept him in a way that I cannot accept him on stage. Now, none of this has to do with the with the acting. Um, Amir Arison is quite fine as um, Amir, same name, um, who is this young boy. We, we take him through his life. This young boy who um, betrays a friend in two instances because he doesn't have courage. One, he just doesn't want people to think badly of him. The other example is when he's afraid he's going to get beaten up. So he doesn't mind the other kid literally getting raped. Uh, he, of course, he minds it. But my point is he doesn't do anything. But he sees it happening and he pretends he's not there. 
That's the big issue. And it haunts him for the rest of his life. Um, but the thing is, this, the play, um, which is um, adapted by uh, Michael, I'm sorry, Matthew Spangler, uses a narrator. So much of the time, he is facing us and telling us what a coward he's been. Mm-hmm. And there's something about stage where you need characters to be larger than life, not diminished. In a way, reading it in a book, it somehow, as I say, it's like a diary. It, it doesn't have the same feeling as it does on stage, where you really want characters to be dynamic. For some reason, um, I didn't have a problem with him when I was reading. I understood he was what, what he was talking about. I understood how he felt. But when I was actually confronted by the real human being up there talking to me about cowardice, and especially when he gets married later, um, the act, uh, the actress who's playing the part and the character herself are sophisticated, intelligent, dynamic, um, self-actualized women. And I have no idea what this woman sees in him. I didn't get that from reading the book, hmm. but I did get it from seeing it on stage. So the drama on stage really made me feel I was watching a wimp. I didn't get that impression while reading the book. It seemed like honest mistakes in the way it was written. And again, much of the dialogue is taken directly from the book. And it really is a very literal, literal, literal um, take on the book. But boy, you know, having a guy confess to you time and time again and time again and time again that um, he he's a wimp made for a very unpleasant evening for me. So nicely produced. Lighting is terrific. Um, but still um, very unsatisfying in a way that the book was not. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I noticed that this is uh, a rental of the Hayes Theater. It's not produced by Second Stage. This is produced by Daryl Roth, who I think we talked about last week or something like that, that uh, that Daryl is producing something else in the, in the other space at Second Stage. Well, um, the actual... Uh, Credit says executive producer Daryl Roth. So there are um, quite a few producers, um, at, at least two dozen that are actually uh, mentioned on IBDB, which I'm looking at right now. But executive producer Daryl Roth. So I don't know how much she's involved with this um, on a day to day basis. Um, the, other I will show st- it, the other show is Between the Lines. Oh, yeah. Between yeah. the Lines. Yeah. Okay. Now, the thing is. Um, when uh, what the Constitution means to me was playing there, it was the Helen Hayes Theater. And we got mm-hmm. the impression that whenever Second Stage used it, their own theater, it was the Hayes Theater. And when they rented out, it was the Helen Hayes Theater. Yeah. For the record, the playbill says the Hayes Theater. So I don't know <laughs> if they weaned themselves away from Helen or it was just simply a mistake. I don't know. But um, but Helen gets no billing this time around in this rental. <laughs> All right. So Helen uh, Hayes gets no respect, damn it. That's that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael, you got up to Lincoln Center at the David Koch Theater uh to see Notre Dame Notre Dame de Paris. Uh so tell us about this uh musical. Well, first of all, I think it's Coke, but don't swear yeah, by me Coke. because I because like Peter, I still try to call it the New York State Theater. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um it, it no is more. the Coke. It's it's so you know he's got politics that I don't agree with, but he do, he donates millions upon millions to that Lincoln Center area. 
that whole family and um yeah. one of them did one of them die did that one die or one of them was very ill i, I yeah i really haven't been following because of the politics i hate i hate to say it but yeah so tell us about notre dame yeah <laughs> enough of that <laughs> um this is a uh, build as a musical spectacle by Luc Plamondon and Richard Cochante. And uh, that, that in itself is interesting because in, in French, spectacle just means show. Uh, you, you would refer to any show uh, by that name, whether it be Les Mis or, uh, uh, you know, Annie, I guess, <laughs> yeah. if they did Annie. Uh, uh, but here it has a different meaning. And here I, I, I think that the meaning that we would uh, – apply to the word spectacle uh, really describes the show because it was always meant to be done in very large spaces, arenas and sports, sports venues and places like that. Um, and that's key to uh, whether you appreciate it or not, because it's very, very big and very, very presentational. Uh, it's not, written in the style of an American musical. Uh, the characters rarely sing to each other. They uh, usually just plant their feet and sing to the audience. Uh, there is a lot of choreography in it, but uh, maybe too much choreography, uh, even during the solos. Uh, frequently, the, the, the dancers will be all around the stage, uh, very frenetic choreography, uh, which is probably not something you would see here as well. And um, it, it is through sung, uh, which I think we're all used to that by now, but uh, there is no dialogue. And, and you know, it's kind of perfect for a place like, the, like that theater, the Coke or the New York State Theater, uh, which is, I believe, 2,700 seats. Mm. Uh, so it, it's not the kind of place where they, they, they used to do musicals there and they were not always that successful. Um, sometimes if you, if it was a really big musical, like epic musical, like Sweeney Todd, I think that went over really well there, but when they would do pajama game, not so much, you know? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, that, that, as I say, that's key to whether or not you enjoyed this show, uh, knowing what you were going to be getting uh, when, when you saw it, because if you expected, uh, a more intimate kind of American musical. Uh, I, I, several people I know who were there just really did not like it at all. But I, um, you know, like to think that maybe I have a bit, a little bit more of an open mind as far as appreciating different styles of entertainments from different parts of the world. So I really did like it for what it is. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Barry Kleinbord was there. I, I went on opening night and there was a, a, quite a group of theater people there and, and other people really didn't like it. But he explained to everyone that, that, that you have to understand that this was conceived to be performed in a very large space, like an arena or an opera house. And uh, that, he, you know, he, he, I think he helpfully schooled some people as to why, it has the style that it does, which some people responded to and other people did not. And then I said, um, and th this is interesting to me, if you look at the opera Carmen, uh, that was written in 1875. So you would think that would be, um, if anything, even more far into us. But Carmen 
in its original form is very much like a, like an American musical. It's got dialogue. It's got people singing to each other. Uh, it's got sung dialogue and spoken dialogue, and it's got uh, it's got intimate moments. But Carmen was written to be performed in a, a, originally in a theater called the Opera Comique, which apparently was quite intimate. So it's really all about what what is what is Sondheim's um, uh, statement. Uh, form content dictates form yeah content mm. dictates form form dictates content <laughs> um, <laughs> you where where something is going to be done uh and and the way in which it's going to be presented dictate should dictate the content and that's a perfect example here so i really really enjoyed it uh th there's some incredible talent in it among the leads um Angelo Del Vecchio as Quasimodo, Hiba Tabaji as Esmeralda, Daniel Lavoie as Frollo, and this incredible guy named Gian Marco Schiaretti as Gringoire, um, who uh, he just has a phenomenal, phenomenal voice. And he's, I read up on his career. I got to speak with him after the show a little bit. And he has played um, in Europe. He's played everything from Bernardo in West Side Story at the Royal Albert Hall to Tarzan in Germany. Hmm. And uh, he was Che in Evita in several parts of Europe. Um, so I think, you know, if, if we can ever get him over here for, for another extended period, I think he could really become a star here. Um, and he, he has a beautiful voice as we'll showcase in our uh, closing music for the podcast today. But I'm, I'm so glad I saw it really. It was, it was, you know, I have not had an opportunity to see shows like this when I have been in Europe. Um, so in this case, the, uh, they brought the mountain to Mohammed or whatever. Uh, and I only had to go as far as Lincoln Center to see it. And I'm, I'm glad they did. They came for only a two week run. And I, uh, I understand that the reviews were, were very mixed, although I did read one really excellent review. So that made me happy. And um, I, uh, uh, oh, by the way, uh, it's part of a tour and their next stop is New Brunswick. And I do not mean New Jersey. Um, I mean, Canada, <laughs> uh, which is funny because I was in New Brunswick, New Jersey yesterday. And I, I was like, oh, you know, well, uh, but that's not where they're going. Uh, so um, uh, th th this this show, regardless of how some people received it here, has, has been a tremendous success throughout Europe and worldwide. And I, I'm sure that it's going to continue. A tremendous success to the nth degree. I mean, it, it started in Paris in 1998. It had a production in London in 2000. Mm -hmm. But the question becomes, you know, why haven't we seen it sooner? Um, it's amazing to me that um, with all this interest in through sung musicals around that period of time, that this didn't make an appearance sooner than now. Um, watching it last night, I have to say, if I didn't know the story, I wouldn't know what was going on. I think it's not telling the story very well at all. Well, maybe it there's is your answer. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, you know, but it doesn't answer the question of how it's been so popular. Oh, um, I see. I see. I um, you know, but um, but uh, the lyrics are truly terrible. And you're expecting me to say rhymes and stresses. No, I don't mean that at all. I mean that they don't tell the story well. Um, they're very florid. They repeat endlessly. Um, it, it, it's amazing to me how uh, so many the, the music. The music occasionally reminds me of Charles Aznavour songs, and I would like them in a Charles Aznavour concert. Mm. But um, 
those are the pretty ones. There are power ballads, of course. But here's what I have to say. That audience last night was there and they were crazy for it. Oh, wow. Interesting. Crazy. I don't know where they came from. Where did these people hear of this show here in America? I mean, I I have no idea how this place got packed. Well, just walking around the streets in recent days, every it seemed like every other person I ran into was speaking French or some other European language. <laughs> Seems like uh, is this peak tourist time in in uh, New York? I guess. Well, I, mean, I guess I, every time is. <laughs> I guess, but uh, and thank God that's true again. But nevertheless, um, I I'm amazed that they all showed up at this place because I mean, as as you said, this is not a small venue, and um, at least the orchestra. Let me say that I don't know about the rings, but I mean packed. Yeah. Packed and crazy for it. I mean, of course, standing ovation, that doesn't mean anything. But I mean, cheers for minutes on end. And I was amazed that they uh, thought it was so terrific because to me, it really seemed like a watered down lame is. I agree with you about the repetition. I think that was one of the major flaws. But apparently, again, that's part of that style, you know, like it or not. And and we don't. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh uh, I guess I guess we both actually failed to mention that it is perf- sung completely in French, and they have titles. Uh, uh, t- uh, the way they did it for this show was two screens on either side of the stage, uh, so it was very very easy to read the titles. It was. They were very bright. Yes, they were. Uh, sometimes when City Opera used to do operas uh, with the titles at the top, they they. Um, uh, maybe we're not so bright. And the Met, I always have an issue, a little bit of an issue, because they're super titles on the back of the seats in front of you. To me, they're not really quite bright enough. I, I guess they keep them dim because they don't want to disturb other people. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, that is uh, Notre Dame de Paris at the David Koch Theater. It's uh, playing through today, so right. uh, you'll have to get up to New Brunswick, not New Jersey, <laughs> to see it. Or uh, I think think that i saw it in london uh many i'm sure years you ago. do i'm sure you so do. oh really uh, yeah oh at the oh, dominion sure. theater i think so yeah oh wow i think so uh, and and I, I i did not schedule tickets for this i thought that once was enough mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh michael the uh, the sondheim quote is uh, uh content content dictates form mm-hmm. and he went on to say in other words the kind of music you're writing should depend upon the character and the dramatic situation that does not happen in this show at all okay. at all okay. at all yeah. the, the music one size fits all for for the characters most of the time most of the time not always but most of the time but sondheim also has said pertinently uh he was asked as to whether uh Sweeney Todd is an opera. And he said, well, when it's mm. done in an opera house, then it's an opera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That's but convenient. He, I mean, he avoided, he, he yeah. always avoided calling it an opera. But. That said, I remember in the first edition of Sondheim and Company, Craig Zaden's book, Leonard Bernstein is quoted as saying, someday Steve will write an opera and he will knock your eyes out. It should be yours, really. But and anyway, he was right. and he was right. He did. Yeah, <laughs> he did. He did indeed. Mm. So uh, we get over to the St. James where Peter saw Into the Woods and uh, another Sondheim show. So, Peter, obviously, this is not an opera, but how did you (laughs) fare with this one? Well, uh, I thought it was a good production. I didn't think it was magnificent. Um, And I have to say that I wonder if uh, so much of the... um, 
um, enthusiastic response, which was on the level of uh, Notre Dame de Paris, um, has to do with the fact that we're all appreciating Steve Sondheim more since he's gone. And um, I think there was a lot of that going on. So uh, but uh, Bare Bones production, because it came from encores, much of it is played in one, if you know that expression, meaning very close to the stage, uh, lip of the stage. And um, uh, I didn't see Brian Darcy James. I saw his understudy, who was magnificent. Bettina Miller is sensational as the witch. Sensational. Philippa Sue, magnificent as Cinderella. Gavin Creel, great fun as the wolf. Um, and Cinderella's prince, for that matter, as is Joshua Henry. Excellent. No question. Um, Sarah Bareilles, um, I don't think she's natively a musical theater performer. Not natively. Um, she's doing well. But she is, to me, overshadowed by the others. And again, some of this has to do with the fact that those of us who saw Joanna Gleason, I recall, was she was like Rocco Landisman, who uh, used to run Drew Jamson Theaters and still has a piece of it, I believe, um, said Joanna Gleason was the finest performance he's ever seen an actress given a musical. I wouldn't go that far. But nevertheless, she was quite wonderful. And um, Sarah Borella's pales in comparison, slightly pales. Um, but uh, it's it's sort of like a strange type of Broadway on the job training. Now, I know she's done her own show, Waitress, uh, that she's performed in it more than once. And uh, but um, I think if she keeps at it, you know, she'll really be a very good musical theater performer. I don't know if that's something that's of interest to her. Apparently, it's more of interest than we might have imagined when she wrote Waitress, that here is essentially her third appearance on Broadway and good for her. Um, but whoa. Bettina Miller. Wow. You know, <laughs> I, I have to admit, I liked him more than Bernadette Peters. And I, it pains me to say that. But um, this is not a case of uh, liking Bernadette less, but liking Bettina more. Um, and um, I, I have to say that uh, Philippa, uh, Philippa Sue um, did it for me more than um, was it Kim Crosby um, in the original. So. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel that uh, uh, that when shows transfer from encores, uh, it wouldn't be uh, the end of the world to throw more money at it. But but the thing is, of course, this is supposedly a limited engagement. And um, we've heard all sorts of rumors that the piano lesson, which was going to go to St. James, which was not a good idea, maybe going to the Barrymore, which would be a better idea. Of course, yes. there is management problems, you know, with the fact that Drew Jamson owns the St. James and uh, it was going to do the piano lesson at the Barrymore's the Schubert house. So, I mean, um, yeah, well, we'll let them work that out. But but still, but still. Um, uh, the piano lesson belongs in a playhouse and not a musical house. And um, although, of course, the St. James's had has played to uh, plays over the time and but not very successfully. So um, so I hope that Into the Woods stays around and brings a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, uh, especially those who haven't seen it on stage before. And the piano lesson does go to the Barrymore. So um, they have. I, I saw that this week that there was uh, some posting that SeatGeek accidentally put <laughs> tickets on sale. Uh, for yes, I did after, see that too. Yeah. After the closing date. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then they quickly took it down. So yeah. Uh, yeah. we talked about this briefly last week that yeah. we're assuming that uh, a press release for the piano lesson moving will come. Mm. And immediately after that press release, we'll get the press release. The Into the Woods is extending. Right. So, uh, but interesting, the the SeatGeek leak mm. of, uh, mm. of the, mm. of the <laughs> availability of seats is uh, it might be uh, quite quite the hint. 
So and didn't you say also that was it Johnny Olesinski? Yeah, Johnny Olesinski from the Post. Yeah, uh, uh, wrote unofficially that. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That the, did he name a theater that the piano lesson? Did he name the Barrymore? I think he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he did. So yeah. we'll see what happens there. We will. All right. So Michael, you got over to the Asylum Theater on Twenty Sixth Street to see Titanic. Uh, Peter has talked about it before. So what did you think about this play? Yes, this is Titanic or Titanic. <laughs> Une parodie musicale. <laughs> and and the, uh, the, um, the, the uh, tagline is, nothing on earth could come between them except Celine Dion. <laughs> and this is a wonderfully ridiculous show about uh, it's theoretically takes place at a Titanic museum and this bunch of tourists show up to, to that Titanic museum to partake of the exhibits. But then suddenly Celine Dion shows up and she hijacks the, uh, the experience as they put it. And this show was uh, one of the co-writers and stars is Marla Mindell who (laughs) plays Celine Dion. And she is just brilliant in that uh i i mean i guess she she kind of built this thing around her but it it's so wonderfully hilariously funny and it provides great opportunities for other people as well so if this is a any kind of a vanity project i think it's the best kind that you could possibly ever see um there are also a lot of other wonderful people in it that that I know, uh, for example, Ryan Duncan and Frankie James Grande. Uh, and also another one of the co-writers and stars is Constantine Rusuli, who I don't know a whole lot about, except he had done something similar a few years ago with um, a, a stage with a parody of Cruel Intentions uh, that was down at, uh, well, I think it was called La Poisson Rouge at the time. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so he uh, he really he, he really seems to have found his niche <laughs> because he has that wonderful parody style, uh, but he also has a, a great voice, and and that goes for Marlon Mandel as well. I mean, they they could they could be very very effective just singing songs straight without sending them up, uh, and I, I think that. That's a tremendous asset for both of them. Uh, I just love this. And I, and I, I spoke with Ryan Duncan afterwards because I know him a bit. And I said, you know, I, I guess the best compliment I could give this show is that I really, really enjoyed it, even though I'm a pop culture ignoramus. Um, I don't know most or of those Celine Dion songs or any of the other pop songs that they, that they shoved into this show. And uh, there were lots of references that I got, but others that went completely over my head, somebody uh, would say something and the audience would scream in laughter. Mm-hmm. And I was, mm-hmm. and I would turn to the person next to me and say, what's that? What's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even so, I still really, really loved it. Uh, and it's gotten some great reviews. Uh, if you go to their website, uh, Richard Handler of Vulture said, Titanic is fucking great. Swim, don't walk to see this <laughs> Celine Dion jukebox fantasia. 
Mm-hmm. And the New York Times said, very funny, near far, wherever you are, Celine Dion will be there in this send up, <laughs> which doubles down on Titanic and Celine Dion as modern camp icons. And uh, Get Out magazine said Titanic, Titanic uh, reignites the fire that went out on Broadway during the pandemic and brings back the effervescence we've all missed. So I really... Um, urge you to get go to see this, especially if you're not a pop culture ignoramus like me. But even if you are, I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. And they've they've had some hard luck along with a lot of other shows where they had to really delay their uh their opening because of COVID and people people were out and people were in and people were out again. And but uh I got to see the entire company when I saw it the other night. So I was very pleased about that. Uh oh and they even make jokes about the fact um, of the venue, which is, as they put it, a theater in a basement below a Gristides. Um, <laughs> this is now called the Asylum. Uh, it used to be called something else. I don't remember what. Oh, it was um, the Jewish Repertory Theater and then the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Um, yeah, it's gone through a lot. I do not believe that it's going to close there. I really believe it's going to move somewhere. I think you're right. I hope you're right, because it's not the best venue. The sight lines especially mm-hmm. for short people like me, mm-hmm. are not good. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, aside from that, and of course, you're right, the sightlines are not good. But nevertheless, um, the audience response leads me to believe that it's got to move somewhere and have a nice, happy run. I think you're right, and I hope you're right. Mm-hmm. Their tagline on their website is, this is the musical parody that you didn't know you needed. Yes, <laughs> I meant to quote <laughs> that as well. Thank you. Wonderful, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, we'll run a little bit uptown to the theater at St. Clement's where Peter saw a production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof uh, produced by Ruth Stage. So tell us about this, Peter. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Well, it seems like it's been um, updated because I heard um, an F word that I don't believe was set on stage in uh, 1955. (laughs) So I don't know if this is the... um, original Tennessee Williams text. When this show was produced, it was famous for having a different third act to the point of which when it was published, there were actually two third acts um, in the actual book. So um, I don't know. And there's nothing in the program that I could find that indicated what script they're using. So I'm a little confused there. All right. I'm pretty sure that I have heard that 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 word was added for one of Williams revisions. Okay, fine. Thank you. Yeah. Didn't know. All right. Um, Very very well acted. I'm especially um, impressed by Christian Jules LeBlanc as Big Daddy, who doesn't appear until the second act. But boy, does he make that second act crackle. Boy, does he have a lot of opinions. Boy, does he have a lot of power. Um, boy, does he bully his family to the nth degree. So um, and um, as Big Mama, Alison Frazier, uh, there's a problem here in the fact that there is much um, allusion to how fat she's gotten. I mean, <laughs> she, she's quite read thin and, and, and quite beautiful. And I've been a fan since 1978 when I first saw her in, in trousers, along with other newcomers, Chip Zine and Mary Testa. Yeah, quite a production. Anyway, <clears throat> Alison Frazier is wonderful, too, as this woman who is pretty much in denial about the fact that her husband does not love her and perhaps never did. And um, she really has a lot of time spending. You don't mean that. You don't mean that knowing full well that he does. So they're terrific. Um, Matthew Regarders, I think, is wonderful as Brick, um, the uh, guy who's very upset about the fact that people don't believe that his relationship with his friend Skipper 
was not a sexual one. And this has been a big problem with him and Maggie, who is played by Sonia Mizuno. Now, now it's called Cat in the Haunting Roof. And notice I mentioned her last. The big problem with this production directed by Joe Rosario and directed very well is that it's in the wrong theater. I'm going to advise everybody not to bring your production to St. Clements during the summer. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Now the thing is St. Clements Saint um, was a church. And whenever you do a play in a church, you're, you're really uh, fighting the elements because churches have steeples and the sound tends to go up and that's a problem. Okay. However, in the summer, with air conditioning, and the air conditioning is loud at St. Clemens, and three overhead fans, which are loud too. This is a very hard production to hear. And the real problem here becomes with the fact that Sonio Mizuno does not project very well. I was in the fourth row and I could barely hear her. And my heart bleeds for those people who are behind me. And the thing is, she starts the play. And as a result, because she doesn't project well, you say, oh, my God, this is going to be two hours and 45 minutes. Yes, it's two hours and 45 minutes of um, not being able to understand what she's saying. You can understand what Brick is saying. So it's not a case of them saying, you know, look, I'm old. My hearing isn't what it used to be. It probably isn't. But nevertheless, I didn't have much problem hearing the others. But I did have a problem understanding the others because there's a strange type of echo mm. that goes on at St. Clement's. So uh, luckily, I know the play very well, so I, I wasn't having a problem following it. But nevertheless, um, I wish and I, who knows about economics? I wish that this production, which is handsome in its set, um, very handsomely designed, though. I don't know how many people have a, a bar in their bedroom. Um, I guess Brick might. But Matthew Imhoff did the set and um, it, it is handsome and, and um, expensive looking for a production on this level. But I don't know what, how much it costs to rent St. Clements and how much it costs to rent one of those downstairs theaters at Theater Row. But I wish it were there. I would have enjoyed it so much more if it were there because it really is a quality production. I'm not saying that um, uh, Sononia Mizuno is a bad Maggie. She's not. It's just that um, we can't hear her. Um, Spencer Scott, excellent as Gooper. Uh, Tiffin, Tiffin, not Tiffany, unless there's a typo. Tiffin Borelli, terrific as May, his wife, who really comes down to brass tacks about uh, what's going on here. I mean, she is not the least bit shy in uh, saying things as they are. Brick was uh, once a football hero, and she talks about the fact that um, he might have been a star in the Rose Bowl, but now all he does is um, involve the punch bowl, um, that football has become a high ball. That's what he's doing now. So those are good lines. And um, and she delivers them with great venom. Um, some may say there's no subtlety in this production, but um, this is a, this is a very dysfunctional family. And uh Whoa, you know, um, the, the fur flies. And um, don't forget, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning play from way back when. And um, uh, uh, certainly an American classic. And really, I mean, uh, may, maybe many people know The Glass Menagerie more, a streetcar more. 
but this is really the third jewel of the triple, triple crown for Tennessee Williams. I'm, I'm not sure that um, anything else would finish in third place, uh, though there are other plays that I admire tremendously, uh, certainly the Night of the Iguana for one. Um, but still, I think this is the third jewel of the triple crown, and it is worth seeing if you know the property. If you watch the movie beforehand, it's not going to help you that much because that was very much censored, so to speak. Um, and uh, there is one um, with Tommy Lee Jones, a, a video of uh, a stage production that uh, that does the play as it was meant to be done, as opposed to the movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman that really, as I say, um, castrates it. So um, so if you if you know the Tommy Lee Jones uh, video, um, you'll have a better time at this cat in a hot tin roof. Um, so, um, yeah, really. The famous thing about real estate, location, location, location. Mm. That's what's really sinking this production. There's another video. I don't know if it's accessible on YouTube with <clears throat> Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner. I've heard about that. And yeah. Lawrence mm. Olivier. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, but I've never seen it. Yeah. All right. So uh, that is Catherine on a Hudson Roof at the Theater at St. Clements. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh Hopefully they'll uh, take heed to the advice because that sounds like that would, it sounds like a great production mm, being mm. hampered by the space. So, uh, Michael, you got over to see Steven Brinberg uh, at the Chelsea table and stage. So tell us about this. Yeah. On Monday, the 18th. And that was my first trip to this, I guess, newish venue which is really quite lovely and elegant. It, it, you make your entrance uh, down this grand sweeping curved staircase into the room. Uh, and you could certainly make an entrance, you know, you could certainly play it up if you wanted to. And um, in this case, Stephen used it for his entrance at the start of the show. I, I imagine maybe a lot of the uh, performers do that uh, because I remember the, when Barbara first came back to live performance all those years ago at, uh, uh, well, I saw her at Madison Square Garden. There was a staircase involved there too. And she, and she sort of sang her first number as she was walking slowly and mm -hmm. grandly down the staircase. So that worked really well, well here. Um, and it was a wonderful show. I, I've seen his show many, many times, but he always, uh, he always mixes it up a little bit as far as the material, uh, always enough to keep it interesting, even if you have seen it multiple times as I have. And also in this case, he had not one, but two really great guests. The first one being Nikita Burstein, who was recently in Romeo and Bernadette and was so wonderful in that. Um, and he sang Lucky to Be Me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he duetted with Barbara Stephen on one of my favorite songs of all time i have dreamed uh so that that would have been reason enough for me to be in that audience that <laughs> night anyway but not only that uh and not only did steven really triumph with every number that he did uh but his other guest was julie benko uh mm. uh and who has gotten a tremendous amount of press recently as, as part of the the phenomenon the the unprecedented <laughs> stuff that's been happening over at funny girl uh because she is the standby i believe that's her official 
uh, title. There was also an understudy who, uh, for the role of Fanny Bryson, funny girl who has gone on once, I, I, I think. Um, but Julie, uh, by everyone who has seen her, uh, she hasn't had any official reviews for obvious reasons, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but everyone who has seen her, including myself, just really thought she was wonderful in the role. And um, funny little story before this show started at Chelsea Table and Stage, uh, my friend Eric Myers was there and I went over to t- speak with him. And, and, I, and he didn't even know who Stephen's guests were that night. He had just come to see the show. So I told him it was going to be Nikita and, and Julie. And he, and he really, his ears really pricked up when he heard uh, that it was going to be Julie because he had no idea that it, she was going to be in the show. And he had read all of the uh, publicity. He's been out of town a lot uh, recently, but he still read it because as we have discussed, this has become the theater story of the, well, certainly of the year. I don't know, maybe of the decade. It's just been <laughs> everywhere. Um, and so he said, oh, he, uh, he said, um, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen her in the show. Uh, and I said, oh, I did see her in, in, as, in, as Fanny and Funny Girl. And he said, oh, how was she? And I said, oh, she was wonderful. She was really great. And I noticed this woman at the next table, her, her, you know, sort of listening in on, on us. And, and so I looked over and I noticed that she looked a lot like Julie. <laughs> well, anyway, it was her mother. Mm. Um, so I'm glad I was saying the right things, but, uh, <laughs> but I was being sincere. <laughs> I was being sincere because I think she's fantastic. And so it was a great, really great, wonderful night with Stephen and his marvelous musical director, Christopher Denny, and these two great guests at this really lovely venue that you should check out in future. The only negative about that venue, I would say, is that um, after the show starts, the uh, uh, at least at the beginning, it seemed like the staff and, and other people were, were still using the staircase, uh, which is basically right behind and above the stage. So that was a little distracting. Um, and I wish they could. Uh, apparently, there is also an elevator one can take uh, to get up and down uh, if one has to. But there's a story there because one of Stephen's audience uh, members uh, was was a celebrity. It was Brenda Vaccaro, uh, mm-hmm. who, who we recently saw at the Theater World Awards. And she was there. And then we were talking with her. And then afterwards, um, we were like, where's Brenda? And it turns out she got stuck in the elevator oh with God. a couple of other people mm-hmm. trying to get back up. But fortunately, she wasn't stuck for long and they got her out. Um, so I hope they fix the elevator at Chelsea Table and Stage because that would be a nice alternate route into and out of the venue. <laughs> <laughs> so uh that is uh steven brimberg at chelsea table and stage that was only for the uh monday july 18th yes. but uh steven's website which i have linked to has all of his dates and he is constantly performing so you can catch up with him there michael you also got over to don't tell mama where you saw an evening of spoken word called poem so tell us about this yeah, this was an evening of poems uh, and music. The poems by uh, someone I've worked with in the past called George R. Carr, who's quite a fascinating individual. He was very, very big in the fashion world uh, for some years, but he always, I guess, has had great interest in theater and, and the arts as well. And um, so he got a bunch of friends together to do this show uh called poem and the i uh, it started out very arrestingly with uh 
two of the uh, cast members, Bronwyn Rucker and John Philip, another friend of mine, um, doing the first poem, which was called Found. And it started with them walking through the audience and uh, basically asking the uh, the audience members, I've lost my poem. Have you found my poem? Uh, <laughs> and it was really, it was really very uh, cute and funny and a nice way into the show. And then uh, in addition to the poetry, there was a lot of music uh, songs that were thought to relate to the poems in one way or another, everything from moon river to Georgie girl to do you believe in magic uh, to good morning starshine. And the third member of the cast was Ephraim Burney or Ephraim. I'm not sure how he pronounces his first name, maybe maybe both ways, uh, who is the son of Reed Burney. And uh, the, the talent has certainly passed, been passed on, let's put it that way. Um, not only did uh, Ephraim play the bongos <laughs> uh, throughout the show to accompany the uh, the the songs uh which were mostly played by woody regan on piano but um then ephraim also did did some of the poems and he he really uh, you can tell that the gene as i say has been passed on he he was really terrific in the poems that he read in a very theatrical way and i spoke with him afterwards um i had met him previously uh and he said he, he told me that he and his dad are redoing a play that they have done before. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it, uh, but uh, it's going to be, it has been added to the uh, season at the Irish rep. Uh, and that's going to be coming up. You'll want to keep your eye on that because someone I know who saw it said that it was a really terrific play. And, you know, there's always something special about seeing um, you know, father and son or mother and daughter, mother and son, uh, siblings, uh, people in the same family performing together if they have the stuff. And he certainly does. So um, that's something to put on your radar. The uh, New York Times has a story about them uh, doing Chester Bailey. Thank you. Uh, which yeah. uh, is a nice little article. I'm going to throw that in the stage notes. They did it at Barrington Stage last year. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, uh, and finally for the morning to, uh, to answer Alan Teasley's question, uh, Michael got a chance to see the hot ticket of the summer, which was Kate Baldwin <laughs> and Aaron Lazar, all for you at 54 Below. That happened this week. And boy, I mean, 54 Below, is, uh, it's about 100 seats or so. Uh, is it about Yeah, that? I think they can cram in like 110 if they really, really I mean, push but. It. Everybody was talking about this. Everybody. Well, they, they did four performances, and I saw, I think, the second one. And that and one they streamed packed. it as well. And they, and they streamed it as well, yes. So tell it us about this. absolutely, incredibly fantastic. I, I want to say before I start that I really have seen several amazing cabaret shows recently. And I think maybe, uh, you know, just as a general statement, it has something to do with the pandemic. I think maybe people had all that downtime. So they were really able to uh, put extra time into planning uh, these shows in terms of choosing the program and, uh, and lining up musicians. This, this show had eight people. (laughs) Um, They're called the American pops orchestra. And apparently they are a, uh, you know, a pre-existing group. Uh, Luke Frazier is the music director. And so it was um, 
no, let me get it right because I, I wrote it down. Uh, it was uh, piano, bass, guitar, and percussion plus a string quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to. You you may ask, how did they fit on the stage at fifty four below? Yeah. <laughs> um, they just got them up there somehow, and 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 Kate and. Aaron confined themselves to a, a very small performing space, like basically standing right in front of the piano player. Um, but then they also uh, realized, you know, that that maybe wouldn't work for the whole show. So they did a lot of singing in the house itself and they brought the house lights up. Uh, Kate would be on stage and Aaron would be in the house somewhere and they'd be singing these beautiful songs from Bridges of Madison County in which they had both triumphed uh, in that production that I saw several months ago in New Jersey. Uh, and if only that production could come to New York somehow, you know, uh, if only that could happen. But in the meantime, they, they did several songs from it in this show and it was an absolute triumph. Uh, in addition to that, they sang a lot of songs from other shows that they have done already, or that they hope to do in the future. Uh, old devil, old devil moon, uh, which is a show that Kate did, uh, Finian's Rainbow, but Aaron has not done yet, as far as I know. Uh, Aaron did Il Mondo Era Vuoto from uh, Light in the Piazza, a role he definitely played at Lincoln Center as a replacement. Um, then they did There Once Was a Man from, from Pajama Game. Kate did Could I Leave You from Follies. Aaron did If I Ever, If Ever I Would Leave You from Camelot. They both did A Little Priest. Um, Finishing the hat, you'll never walk alone. Uh, and uh, oh, the the finale was that wonderful song. I give it all for you uh, from Jason Robert Brown's songs for a new world. So that wasn't Bridges of Madison County, but it was the same composer. Um, it was just an amazing show. But as I said before, uh, this show, Jeff Harnar's show that I raved about recently at the Laurie Beachman, a uh, Sam Gravitz show that he did at Birdland a while ago and was such a success that he's bringing it back on August 1st. All of these shows are just so well done and so plan- so well planned, and they all feature wonderful uh, accompaniment in, in addition to not not just not just piano, but all these other wonderful musicians with uh, this one had incredible charts. Apparently, the uh, I asked I asked someone, and they I was told that the American Pops Orchestra has a team of orchestrators. But there were times when I felt like uh, really it felt like a Broadway orchestra, especially on that uh, flight in the Piazza number. I, I I felt like I might as well have been back at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. It was just mm-hmm. just amazing, and how they they how they pay for these people is, you know, between them and the people. So I won't get into that, but uh, from an audience standpoint, I'm just so grateful to hear that kind of instrumentation and with talent, incredible talent, like Aaron and Kate, it, it, it was a, an evening to be remembered really just not to be missed. And I'm glad they streamed it. If only because uh, I'm sure that means that there's a record of it, a video record of it for people who want to see if they can access that somehow. So, yeah, the Karen, uh, Aaron Lazar and Kate Baldwin, all for you at 54 Below. It was this past week. Hopefully, uh, Alan Teasley in the uh, chat room is saying, we are we in the hinterlands appreciate the streaming. 
So, oh, yeah. quick funny story. We have we have discussed recently the very quick uh, and abrupt changeover uh, where uh, Michael Feinstein's name has been yeah. removed. <laughs> well, uh, this this seemed to happen very very quickly in terms of the website and social media and other things like that. But um, when I got to the venue, uh, as I was walking down the the stairs, I saw that some of the uh, shows being advertised on the monitor, some of them still said Feinstein's 54 Below, and some of them said 54 Below. But then when we got into the room, uh, for those of you who've been there, against the back wall, there are two plaques uh, embedded into the wall, and they both still say Feinstein's 54 Below, because I guess they haven't had the time mm. or the money to replace those yet. But get this, the lighting <laughs> mm. uh, on the back wall had been configured in such a way that there was no light on the word Feinstein's. Mm. They took out so, the F word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Kevin McInerney and I, who who went to see the show, got a little chuckled out of that. And I, I noticed it first and I pointed it out to Kevin and he just thought that was hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moments, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts. Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to a finer podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer for trivia from two weeks ago? Yeah, and uh, what I'll also say is that um, the question that I will answer today will be one of the questions and answers that will be in my newer book, um, which I just sold called Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, which Mm. deal with all these questions that I've been giving for all these years. I'm putting them together into a book. And um, so I have to have it finished by the end of November, which I shall. But uh, anyway, so uh, that's coming out. And um, certainly it'll be dedicated to the people who have been so, so attentive to these questions and have worked so hard to answer them over the years. So but the question was, what do the simple folks do from Camelot nowadays from Chicago? The secretary is not a toy from how to succeed. And the merry little minuet from John Murray Manderson's Almanac all suggest something that Stephen Sondheim once alleged in a song is true. What is it? Well, given that those who perform those songs do some whistling in them, it would suggest that anyone can whistle. <laughs> Tony Janicki got it first. Josh Israel soon followed, as did Brigadood, Steve Bell, Deb Popple, Ingrid Gammerman, Greg Christensen, and Isaac Blevins. This week's question. I'm looking for a five-word title of two songs, both of which made their debuts this century. The first four words of each song are identical. Only the last word is different. Those last words are antonyms. Each song is a duet. And the same performer was involved in both shows, Broadway productions. However, in the first instance, he duetted with a man. In the second, he duetted with a woman. For the first, he won a Tony. For the second, he wasn't even nominated. Who is he? What are the shows? 
in one of the almost identically titled songs. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. Hey, Peter, I have a marketing idea for your uh, new trivia book. Aren't you nice? (laughs) So uh, I think that you should uh, put out the book with all the questions and then release a second book with answers. <laughs> so like, but wait like nine months in between or something like that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Good for I you. Thinking, I was thinking that. So, <laughs> so Michael, what do we have in uh, this week's musical moment? Well, I earlier mentioned Brenda Vaccaro, who uh, I was yeah, certainly aware of her, but I, I've done some, reading up on her career lately and she really had quite a career uh and one of the facets of her career was that she was in a broadway musical called how now dow jones and uh actually after stephen brinberg's show uh at chelsea table and stage we got to speak with her and she was regaling us with stories about that she was not a fan of david merrick Let's put it that way. Uh, and uh, obviously, she wasn't alone. Uh, but uh, she really is delightful on that album. And uh, th- so our opener, opening music was the opening number from that show, uh, led by Brenda Vicaro. So you can enjoy that. And the closer is um, a number from Notre Dame de Paris called Le Temps. De cathedral, really, really meaning the time of the cathedrals, uh, and this was performed. Uh, well, it was performed in the show, but also apparently on Bastille Day, July fourteenth, there was some kind of an outdoor celebration in the city somewhere, and the aforementioned amazing, incredible singer John Marco Schiaretti sang it there. Uh, so there's a clip of that that you can see on YouTube and and the audio of that performance is our closer Le Temps des Cathédrales from Notre Dame de Paris. Hmm. We have to uh, measure in the future uh, how people who work in the business dislike uh, producers like David Merrick. Uh, <laughs> and then we have to measure it against uh, the hatred for Garth Drabinsky. You know, this week mm-hmm. with the closing, uh, the sudden closing of uh, mm-hmm. Square. Well, everyone is saying and what I have been saying for months and months, and uh, is that how did it? How was it allowed to happen? But yes, but some people who have, um, you know, just quickly, some people who have come out against him in recent days, uh, when they have been asked, "Why did you work with him?" Uh, you know, knowing all that you knew and the fact that he actually literally was in prison. Uh, you know, uh, they they said, and and I guess I thought this too, that they assumed that everyone would be watching him like a hawk, mm-hmm. uh, and apparently not. Uh, people just allowed him to get away with things like building up a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar bill for uh, for advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, someone said to me uh, that Broadway is the only place the only venue the only business or whatever that still sometimes works uh based on people's words mm, uh, yeah. you know they they don't collect that money up front <laughs> uh and they uh i mean i guess it well i mean i guess it must be written down somewhere but they whatever i mean that was allowed to happen so 
look where they are now, and it's just a really, really bad situation. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.